Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 180 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We're a working library with more than 90,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Anthony Graziani, owner of Article Menswear. Hey, Chris. And Ben Greenberg, a library board member and principal of BS LLC, a boutique marketing firm. Hello, Chris. Hello. You guys know each other? We've met. You've yes. met a couple times? We've met before, <laughs> yeah. Um, today, we'll discuss, or today we'll be discussing Amatora, How Japan Saved American Style by W. David Marks. Normally at this point, I'd be warning you about spoilers, but it's a nonfiction book, so I'm going to warn you that we are probably going to mangle a lot of Japanese pronunciation through the recording of this podcast. Um, Amatora, How Japan Saved American Style, uh, tracks the Japanese post-war obsession with American men's war- wear. Starting with the 1960s fad for copying the relaxed Ivy League look popular on U.S. college campuses, for much of the second half of the 20th century, Japan looked to America for style inspiration. As a result, uh, the author suggests that Japan repeatedly saved American style by archiving and codifying it, by rescuing it from extinction through the purchase of heritage American goods, and more recently by providing American men with an exhaustively documented template for how to dress like their grandfathers did. So um, let's start with some general impressions of the book. Ben, what did you think about this thing? I love this book. Uh, you know, I, it's funny. I don't, I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of novels. Um, and, you know, I, I read articles, but I, I don't do long form. I don't, I don't read a lot of long form, you know, uh, nonfiction. And I this was this was really fun because I have been increasingly interested in you know men's clothing, men's wear, uh, you know, Tweety things and corduroy jackets, and I I showed up to the one of the first days of my freshman year of high school wearing a Harris Tweed jacket with elbow pads and a and a rep tie, and I thought I was so cool. Uh, I was not cool, but this book makes me think that that. There's something to it, and um, and I've also always always appreciated and been interested in Japanese culture uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but this kind of confirmed some of those interests. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, time, place, occasion that comes up in this book a lot. Yeah, definitely. You should have been living in Japan <laughs> in the <laughs> 1960s. I should have. I would have been considered a a derelict, uh, you know, an eccentric. Um, <laughs> You know, someone that you you uh, you know you wouldn't want your kid to be like, yeah. which is which was fascinating, right? So that was one of the you know in the foreword they talk about uh, the introduction. They talk about how uh, before the Olympics, which was going to be the first big international uh, show off for for Tokyo and for Japan after the war, that they started rounding up these these groups of of rebels that were wearing you know like. God help us, uh, skinny ties and, you know, uh, three-button suits and heavy wool suits. And that was like gangster apparel yeah. in the 1960s. Like dressing like William F. Buckley. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> really G'd out. Anthony, what did you think about this thing? You know, man, I thought it was really cool. Um, 
unlike Ben, I didn't show up to uh, high school when I was 16 wearing a Harris Tweed jacket. Um, you know, my interest in fashion, I think, probably uh, grew a little bit slower than that. But one of the things that really spoke to me um, through this book and through my experience with Article is I think it's just a really interesting look at brand building um, and kind of like culture creating. Uh, and I saw a lot of parallels from what Kensuke Shuzu was doing with Van. You know, he was just kind of like this mad fashion scientist in Japan trying to bring something new to a culture that hadn't seen it before. And um, all, I mean, in an odd way, and maybe I have this inflated self-ego, but like I feel like that's kind of what we're trying to accomplish with Article in that, um, you know, Cincinnati is, you know, not the first place you think of when you think of men's fashion. Um, and, you know, it was, for me personally, it felt like somewhat of a leap to, to start a store in the middle of a developing area that we're going to carry all of these, like, up-and-coming brands. Um, and we had some things that really helped us, you know, get over that hump, and it, it has been a great thing, and we are really appreciative of the, you know, that it's turned out so well, that the community's really embraced us. But um, I just thought that the whole book, you know, especially now that we're seeing more Japanese-influenced fashion and the brands that we're picking up, um, and some of, like, just in general, the, some of the, the methods of, like, fabric creation and this battle over, you know, who's, who makes the best denim and why don't we make the best denim in the United States if we invented the gene? I just thought all of that stuff was wrapped up in this neat little package that it's kind of a nerd book if you're a men's fashion person. It's <laughs> yeah, definitely totally, like yeah. you can n totally nerd out on this thing. Um, but... I thought it was really cool. I enjoyed reading it a whole lot. Yeah, <clears throat> I thought so. so too. So okay, so let's walk. Let's walk back to the 1960s. When were the Tokyo Olympics? 1964. 64. Yeah. Okay, so uh, post-war Japan. Um, you know, before this time, everyone had their societally determined clothing that yes. they would wear. You know, men going to work would wear a dark suit, a dark tie. I think it says in the book, uh, white shirts outsold any colored shirts yes. 20 to 1. And you could actually get in trouble at work if you wore a striped shirt. In, in fact, the word for button-down shirt in Japanese means white only. White only. So, weto, wow. yeah. which means white only. Okay. Um, <laughs> so that, in, and that was, you know, something that had to be broken. Yeah. Uh, that what you're talking about, these sort of societal structures and, and the school uniforms, yes. everybody wearing the same thing, that individuality was not a, a, uh, a celebrated um, you know, uh, attribute. That if you expressed an individuality that you were seen as rebellious, yeah. that you were seen as derelict, um, and that was, you know, that was against the grain, it was against the norm. Um, and and that, was that was one of the, the first parts of this story that interests me was how people like Ishizu uh, were, who were really interested in this men's fashion that they were seeing on the GIs, uh, the American soldiers who remained in Japan after the war, and how they t tried to sell that mm -hmm. to uh, an unwanting Japanese audience. Yeah. And the solution to that, which also I found really fascinating, was to break it down into these highly specific, highly technical guidelines, mm -hmm. rules, yes. structures, the men's style guides were, it allowed men to access fashion in a way that they had accessed sport or competition, that it sort of allowed, it was a way in for the Japanese male who, 
you know, being thought being thought of as fashionable was feminine in Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, you didn't want to be too into fashion. But right. this whole minutia allowed them a way in that sort of satisfied the their cultural identity. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I agree. And the thing about that is, is that it totally did play into kind of like the post-war ideals in that everything was by a rule book, you know, in Japanese culture. And so it normalized it to the point where any man could be fashionable. He's just following the rules. I mean, there were, once you established the rules, I mean, I think that was definitely, like you said, it was the game changer. The thing also that I thought was really cool and interesting is that, you know, throughout the book, it's quoting all of these um, stats about, yeah. you know, the public's perception of the United States. Mm-hmm. And everybody hates the United <laughs> States. But when they ask, turn around and ask that question of, like, do you like America? Well, yeah, we yeah, love America. Yeah, we, love America. <laughs> well, we just yeah. don't like the United States. Right. It's like you're, yeah. you're, you're separating these two things because, you, you know, you're, you're buying into the American lifestyle ideals, but um, the United States. I just thought it was, it was really cool that they're just interesting stories that weave through the whole, right. whole book really that way. You know, one thing I really thought was amazing about this, the early period, was they, they kind of started with a blank slate. There was nothing. Yeah. There was, everyone used to dress this way, but then all, you know, all the school kids are dressing in these identical black wool suits, which to a business person like yourself, Anthony, must just seem like a, just a brand new market, like fresh. So this guy, uh, Kensuku, K- Kensuke Ishizu, is that close? I think so. Yeah. Chris is looking at me right now, which is which is a mistake. You sounded <laughs> authentic when you said it before. Well, That's why I'm looking at you. I, I just like to offer a public apology on behalf of the Mercantile Library that <laughs> to the nation of Japan. Any, look, yeah. look, we, we nothing but reverence and respect. Uh, we will, we are trying, uh, but yeah, we don't know how to pronounce these yeah, words right. at all. Well, yeah. So <laughs> Ken, let's call him let's Ken. Call him yeah, Ken. I like that. Yeah, he uh, had this kind of idealized image in his mind of how kids in going to Ivy League schools dressed, you know, the Ivy style, which was a real thing in America. But back then it was difficult to travel to the U.S. from Japan. Um, so they, he kind of made it up as he went along in the early days, I feel like, um, and started a, a, a company called Van Jacket, which was immensely... It, it figures throughout this whole book uh, until they go mm-hmm. bankrupt yeah. in, I think, 78. Because they, they're the ones that brought um, brought the style to Japan and said, you know, it's okay, guys. Follow the rules. You're not, like, right. being fancy. You're just following the rules of how right. to dress. Like, so they, they, yeah, these these are real things. Yeah. These rules actually exist. Yeah. They're not Honest. arbitrary. Honest. We didn't make them yeah. up. <laughs> and they were sort of surreptitiously publishing the editorials right. and selling the clothing. And it was just this genius, yeah. you know, content marketing strategy that which, you know, would make Madison Avenue jealous. Yes. Which you can do, especially when there's nothing. And yeah. you're stepping in yeah. and creating the whole market. And I think the, the, the backstory on Ivy, from what I understand, is, is that uh, Ishizu, during the war, actually left Japan and went to China to work uh, in Tianjin, which, which was an international city. It was a trading port. And so there was a lot of European fashion. And there were a lot of like these kind of cavalier dudes hanging around. And one of them was, I think it was Paul Hesegawa, hmm. who actually spoke English, who became part of the whole van community and, and help them market. But but he kind of regaled Ishizu on 
American culture and these these gallivanting young Ivy Leaguers going, you know, going to class in these uh, three-button suits and and just yeah. constantly dressing to the nines all the time and you know going to jazz clubs and all of that and. Ishizu was just, in, you know, completely in love with this idea that he really didn't know anything about beyond these like one or two stories that he heard, yeah. and then built an entire universe yes. around this. Um, well, let's. I, I suppose there might be some people listening that aren't nerds about men's clothing. So, Anthony, can you talk just a little bit about Ivy? What does that mean as a style to you? Honestly, I think Ben is probably more suited to handle that. But to me, it means, um, you know, uh, like a classic Chino, it's like the JFK look. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've got a hard part. Um, you've got it's, – it's kind of like this effortless um, Hollywood mystique behind it almost. Mm-hmm. Um, Martha's Vineyard kind of like Connecticut style. Yeah. So kind of uh, casual, loafers. put together, but casual. Exactly. Not, not like a – crisp suit but yeah totally a little rumpled uh, maybe you know like button down collars yeah. uh loose ties and and um you know kind of like your favorite blazer that you throw on every single day yeah i mean usually you're not wearing socks yeah. i would imagine you know i mean if, it, if it's frayed all the better you yeah. know you, you wear it until it falls apart you, you it's it's the effortlessness is is important and and it that was one of my favorite parts of the book is when they actually go to, to the Ivy League schools, yeah, um, which we can get to in a second. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but yeah, that's that's a perfect encapsulation yeah. of the Ivy style, is you know just sort of like you know JFK, uh, you know quaddy boots or or topsiders or Sperry's, mm-hmm. uh, you know just, just you know rugged clothing that that lasts a long time, but is also it looks. Everything looks good together. Everything works together. Time, place, occasion is also, yeah. you know, factors into it. Sure. For the right time, the right place, the right occasion. You know, you wouldn't wear, uh, you know, like the button-down sweater combination to, you know, a formal event. You'd, you'd wear a suit. Right. But, but you would wear that to, you know, a football game. Yeah. Um, so uh, these guys, as you mentioned, they finally get to... Uh, America, with the intention of making a, I guess, like a documentary. They take a film crew with them um, and do their best to tour around these campuses. And I think they're at least a little surprised by what they find. Um, you know, I think there are a lot more people in T-shirts. Yes. Uh, which mm-hmm. uh, they, they make the point in the book before it was hard to sell t-shirts in Japan because it was considered underwear. Right. So they had to kind of like um, introduce that as something you can wear on its own. But anyway, they so they, they also take a, a regular, not film crew, but just photographers who take pictures, which turns into the book Take Ivy, which just has a huge influence. This was also one of my favorite parts of the book, like Ben. I... I I thought it was really funny because they, they've built this whole thing up like, and we've been kind of talked about all of the rules that the Japanese follow and how are you going to get men into fashion? Well, you got to give them a guidebook and it's just rules and, you know, they were rebels and now, it, now it's acceptable and it's like this really big thing. And then they get to America and they step off the plane and nobody's following any rules at all. Yeah. It's like, it's the land of the free. You'd wear whatever you want. And they even asked the one guy, you know, his pants were kind of like, he was wearing some cropped chinos that were showing off like all the, you know, you could see his ankles. And I said, wow, are these, 
our cropped chinos. Is that a cool thing? And the guy's like, I don't know what the heck are you talking about. I'm just, they, yeah. it's just pants that were clean. I put them on and I'm going to class. Leave me alone. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was like, uh, it, they even, I think, had to go like wait outside of the church building to find what their idea of Ivy was to, to wait for people to actually be stepping out of church to fit, to get pictures of people they, that fit the, what they had built up from photographs in Japan uh-huh. uh, to what they thought Ivy League style was. I just thought that was such a culture clash. And also, then when they took that back, that became part of the rules right. was yeah. the rules are there are any more. There are no rules <laughs> yeah. in America. And, and so that really opened up the rest of the book, actually, because then you got into all these other fashion parts that we can talk about. But mm-hmm. I, I thought that that was such I thought that was really interesting uh, counter culture point there, too. When he asked the, the kid, he says, you know, did you intentionally wear these cropped chinos? Did you do this intentionally? And the guy's like, I washed them and they shrank. So I just <laughs> right. put them on. <laughs> yeah. And he comes back to Japan and he's like, no, no, no. Like, I actually have an explanation for this. Japanese culture is very conscious. We are very conscious. We make decisions, and we they're made intentionally, and we have you know ideas to back them up. Americans, they do everything unconsciously. Like they're doing the same thing. They're making the same decisions we are, <laughs> but they're just choosing to sort of. Uh, no, I didn't even think about this man. Like yeah. I just sort of thumbing their nose at the idea <laughs> that they're trying at all. When obviously they are. We yeah. all know. We Americans try harder than anybody else. We try hard to look like we're not trying hard. Like right. that's the whole thing. And and like, they're just they, the, these Japanese guys like just couldn't like. <laughs> it was completely, it just disappointed them so much. I mean, but also it excited them. To, I I feel like there was both an air of like excitement and disappointment. That disappointment that people weren't going to football games in suits, but <laughs> excitement that okay now we can like. There are new things and new ideas that we can bring back and, and you know market and sell. Yeah, which they do extremely successfully. Um, they sell. I mean, it, it gets to the point where it's a fashionable thing in Japan, not just to be dressed right, but to have a van bag right. to carry your stuff around in. Um, so y- you end up with these like youths. Walking around Tokyo dressed like we said in these, like, you know, William F. Buckley costumes, and that's terrifying to Japanese parents. That you know they they're called the Ivy Tribe, and so to clean up before the Olympics, the cops go out and round up anyone that looks like they're dressed especially well. Right. I thought the funniest thing was then that uh, they probably rounded up. This is. I, the book doesn't really spell this out, but in my own mind, I'm imagining these police officers because they want to look so respectable, right, to the rest of the world. This post-war image of Japan, it just got to be perfect. This is their mm-hmm. big moment. And they round up all of these well-dressed teens <laughs> that would probably make Japan look really progressive and cool, you know. And then uh, not only that, but, um, I mean, they hired Ken Ishizu yeah. to make the... Uh, the um, police uniform, the uniform, the yeah. yeah, and it's I, it just so it's so term. funny how things the you know the culture was clashing yeah. at that point in time. Yeah, it was Ishizu who was designing the Olympic uniform mm-hmm. uh, for the for Japan, which they, they were unstructured three button bla- bright red unstructured three button blazers, and it, it, they were a, a total hit. Yeah, and people loved it. 
and yeah. it legitimized the the Ivy style uh, for Japan. Although it seemed like, you know, to track this book a little bit, it seemed like every single style was was first sort of uh, derided by the ruling class and, and the, like, parents and all mm -hmm. that. And then, I mean, much like America. And then it's legitimized. But then it seems like it goes back to being outlawed again. And then it's legitimized. Yeah. There were, like, four Ivy movements. Yeah. Four different Ivy re revivals. Well, there's a, they said, well, someone said in the book, uh, when there's no other style, there's, you go back to you Ivy. You go back to Ivy, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, from there... In the 60s, Ivy was huge. And then um, in the 70s, they kind of moved to like a classic 50s rock and roll style, American rock and roll style. So you'll see these pictures of uh, Japanese youths with these big pompadours they called the Regent Cut. Um, but, you know, one thing that I noticed about this, this era, uh, it didn't really start from them trying to go back to Elvis. It started from them trying to copy uh, a Japanese singer um, who had a similar sound and a similar style. So it seems like they're kind of, at this point, taking this look and from their own, you know, seeing it within Japan and going from there and building this up. And from there it kind of branches out, I think, um, because it's kind of adopted by biker gangs, basically, who incorporate ultra-nationalist -national yeah. right-wing elements to it. Um, but yeah, so uh, I guess after after Ivy, we have we have the rock and roll guys. Yeah, you have Mambo. Yeah. Too, yeah. Which is its own thing. The Mambo tribe were they were really into, like, it seemed like it was a mixture of greaser and kind of Don Ho Hawaii. So they were wearing <laughs> like loud Hawaiian shirts with skinny black ties and skinny black jeans yeah. and like black loafers and wearing sunglasses at night and it w and it was like this i thought it, i think it's kind of a cool style the mambo style yeah it's i there's nothing like it today i don't think maybe i'm wrong anthony no like, i cuz the whole book you've been able to draw comparisons to the united states throughout history mm -hmm. and even now we're now you know it goes round and round who's imitating what at what time from the past and i can't think when they were describing Mambo style, I was like, wait, so it's like a biker and a Hawaiian shirt yeah. and flip-flops? Yeah. Right. It doesn't make sense, but they're wearing a leather jacket with yeah. that? It's like yeah, totally it, unique. Yeah. I've it's never heard of anything like, like it. It's almost like the 80s and the 60s in a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, it was a little bit of 80s, but in the before the 80s. Well, like, it was the 70s, so that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, a right. good point. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I think that is kind of maybe different about Japanese culture. Uh, it, or, or one way of illustrating that is if you look at Japanese um, men's magazines, style magazines, which feature prominently in this book, um, Popeye, Men's Club, um, Free and Easy. American um, style or style magazine for men, it's almost like, and, and it's the, the same issue we talked about before. You're trying to make it okay for men to be into it. So you have to put like, naked ladies in there and yeah, right, here's some drinks yeah. you got to drink. Here's a cool car. Right. Oh, and these ties are kind of cool too. I yeah, guess, right. You know, <laughs> but in Japan, um, and this comes later in the story, but uh, some guys go to America, San Francisco and find the whole earth catalog, Oh yeah, which is influential here. 
Um, but almost from a philosophical standpoint, I think. But they like the way it was laid out, I think. Right, where right. It's like a bunch of things, a bunch of products. And so the, they, they kind of take that back. And, uh, and that, that, that's how they're, the magazines there are. It's kind of like really focused on the product. It looks like a catalog more than anything else. Right. Yeah, they, they sort of attached to, I remember there was one passage where he, where he said, like, I really liked how in America, uh, Americans would collect catalogs and kind of read them wistfully and kind of, yeah. it was an aspirational thing where, like, they could kind of imagine themselves living this life. And he's like, I, I thought this, that, that this would really track. And, and so he brought it back. But, but it was, you know, he made it his own by, mm-hmm. by, kind of just like mixing and matching all these different things like red wing boots and you know ivy stuff and like which is much more today i feel like how we look at style that it's like you know much more of a combination of all these different lifestyles and products and ideas the whole idea of doing a lifestyle magazine or lifestyle uh you know uh editorial is as i i i didn't know that that was a. I didn't know that that was a concept that had a history uh, that went back at that, you know into the seventies. I didn't know that that's kind of when that came about. Um, yeah, and I, I, that's interesting that you you put it that way. I think I think it's made in USA. The Japanese yeah, magazine, made in USA, yeah. the guys that did that, they weren't trying to make a fashion magazine. They were trying to encourage Japanese kids to go outside, do outdoorsy stuff, go hiking, climb a mountain. The kids would get the magazine and just look to see yeah. which parka they should wear yeah, when they right. go out with their friends, you know. So, not they they kind of focused on the product. Definitely. Yeah. I, I think that. Um, I mean, I look at catalogs a lot. I mean, I don't know how I got on these lists. Half of these people I haven't even bought anything from. But ha- I mean, I was just before I left the house. I had a stack of catalogs that had amassed over about a week's time that were like probably 10 inches thick, you know, um, whether it's, um, it, they're all lifestyle driven too, you know I mean? So that's not like an, an uh, abnormal thing. Um, I mean, there, I know like Patagonia, mm. their catalogs come and I immediately want to go out and hike a mountain <laughs> and I don't even really do that sort of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I want to do it. Yeah. And I think, that that kind of America is the best at marketing things. Yeah, I mean that that's just it's capitalism. We have you know we've just trained ourselves to be that way in business, and um, I think the Japanese looked at that and just really were they liked it. Mm-hmm. I, I think they want they wanted to be able to present because after in post war Japan you had this blank slate, right? And people once the economic recovery had yeah. happened, people had some money that they wanted to spend and well, how are we gonna market it? I don't know. How do the Americans do it? Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like they're they're instead of sending because this catalog, this made in USA catalog wasn't something you could actually buy anything from. They right. had the prices in American yeah. and no obvious way to order it. I mean, so this is not like a true catalog. It's just like this fake catalog <laughs> that is getting guys is is making people want to buy things yeah. and um is pretty interesting how that works. But, it, you know, I, the thing about backing up that Kensuke Ishizu did with uh, Men's Club Magazine is that it was kind of, I was sitting there reading it thinking like, well, this is the first ever lifestyle blog. 
you yeah, know? Very true. Like, yeah. okay, so he's he's creating Van. Mm-hmm. You know, he's creating Ivy style. Mm-hmm. He's he's rabid about it and has decided to unleash it in Japan. But the but his vehicle that he was able to like secretly hijack was his blog, you know? And now we actively <laughs> yeah. go to blogs. And you read every blog you every fashion blog you read, whether it's strictly from the brand's website mm-hmm. or from a third quote unquote third party blogger, everybody's paid for. That's oh, the yeah. secret. Yeah. You know, um, if you're reading a continuous lean, which is a blog that I love to read, uh-huh. okay, I mean that's a big part of what we want to accomplish at Article is very inspired by that. Um, they also on the side they have a Paul and Williams, which is a market, you know, PR marketing firm for fashion houses. Right. So, and, and Red Wing is a client of theirs. <laughs> and now you're so you're reading, okay, on a continuous lean uh-huh. written by Michael Williams. Yeah. A, re- a story about how awesome it is that Red Wing boots are this heritage brand made in USA. Don't you want some? You know, but but they, it's not super salesy. It's just very matter of fact. This is what's cool in a lifestyle oriented way. That's mm-hmm. also secretly marketing. Yeah. And Kintsuke Shizu was doing that. <laughs> sort of invented. I mean, yeah. he invented. I, mean, it. <laughs> I think the guy's really a genius. Yeah. I was. Yeah. I. I literally, I want to be at Kintsuke Shuzu. Yeah. I, he's my new hero, <laughs> and I didn't even know about the book until you brought it to my attention, Chris, yeah. so thank you. Sure. <laughs> like, yeah, anything awesome. I can do to yeah. help, yeah. But, um, yeah, no, I thought they were really shrewd in their marketing, and um, it just goes to speak to, you know, some of these pioneers back then that just brought things to the Japanese without the Japanese even really knowing what was going on. Yeah. You know, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, Towards the end of the book, they get into the the idea that in Japan there's this built into their way of thinking about American stuff is it's the best. It's the origin. I mean, they they call in the book they call the style very conservative because it's focused on this. The the first thing was the best. Mm-hmm. So then they um, when it starts to be really easy to get Levi's jeans and that sort of thing, they're right. kind of not that impressed because this would be, I think, the 80s or so. Um, so the quality of the jeans wasn't the same as it was in the 50s. So some Japanese buyers came to the United States and would just ride around the Midwest going to vintage stores and thrift stores finding ancient Levi's, ancient Lee and Wrangler jeans and sending them back to Japan to sell. But, you know, there's a limited supply of those. So then they decided, well, let's make better jeans <laughs> than the original. So, um, and that's kind of what they started to do. So there is this denim debate going on about who makes the best denim. Mm-hmm. Um, to speak to that, one of the, you know, we sell a, a few brands at Article, some of which use... American-made denim, and some of which use the Japanese-made denim. And, um, you know, one of the... You have to be able to use... In our opinion, the best denim is a selvage denim, Mm -hmm. meaning that it's uncut on one side and that it uses, like, a 1950s-era shuttle loom right? um, that they also would use in Japan and had, like you said, rode around and bought up a lot of the equipment. There's this one particular chain stitcher that's, like of legend mm-hmm. called the 43200G Union Special. And they go for thousands of dollars. Um, and the Japanese just just about bought every single one of them that were in the United States. And so 
there is this big battle about who makes the best jeans, and there's no doubt that Japanese woven denim is very, very good. Um, it's pretty cool that that is talked about in this book and that that is actually a really big part of our culture at Article as well. Right. Um, Noble Denim in Cincinnati now is actually starting to import some of their denim from Japan. Okay. And um, there's only one factory in the United States in North Carolina that actually still has their original 1950s um, shuttle loom. It's Cone Mills in um, White Oak, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's just a pretty cool kind of a side story there, but the the Japanese-American debate over who does what better. I mean, they, the Japanese, man, they, their textiles are crazy. They do some things that you just can't even touch in America yeah. because they're so such purists about it. Yeah. Uh, Anthony, for those listening that don't know Noble Denim, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, Noble Denim is a, a locally designed denim company in Cincinnati, started three years ago by a guy named Chris Sutton. Mercantile Library member, Chris Sutton. Mercantile Library member, Chris Sutton. Yeah. Um, So he, you know, he wanted to make a pair of jeans. Um, He, he, and obviously he'd be able to tell the story better than me, but um, when I was starting Article and he was starting Noble, we we worked together quite a bit on, on things, just kind of bouncing ideas off of each other and everything. So I'll try to relay his story as best as I can for him. Um, but, you know, he, I remember he told me, he was just like, man, I just wanted to make a pair of jeans, you know, and um, I thought it would be cool. And, and so I set out to do that. And he actually went and studied um, in Wales under this denim company called Hyatt Denim, which is kind of a, um, you know, classically inspired denim company, uses selvage denim and everything. Um, did that for a few months, came back, and then started Noble Denim after, I think, bouncing around a few ideas. Uh, he's originally from the Pacific Northwest, and um, his wife is from here and has some ties to the area, so had settled in Cincinnati and set up shop in um, the Anchor Building near Northside um, as his first workshop. And originally, he was putting in every single stitch, but, uh, you know, demand outgrew the ability to make the jeans and as a one-man shop you can only grow so much and so now he utilizes a factory in Tennessee um, which was kind of hit pretty hard when um, more multinational approach to apparel making came about in the 1980s and they'd lost a lot of contracts and had downsized quite a bit and so he tries to utilize that factory as much as he can for his production so that um, you know, he, he is somewhat giving back to that community, and it's still somewhat within the region. They do a great job. Um, and had originally sourced all of his components from the United States, started with uh, the North American, uh, the Cone Mills produced denim, and um, some now has done some small batch offerings and I think is coming out with a new Japanese line. So we sell, at Article, we sell the United States-made product. Um, he opened up the Victor Athletics Club, which is speaks to his kind of like a knitwear offshoot that he's now started. Out of the Victor Athletics Club, he's actually going to be selling the Japanese woven denim in the same two fits. And so it's fun to see him grow. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been a big part of Article's success. It's been our number one item since we opened. Um, Noble Denim Jeans have been. So yeah. 
Yeah. Shout out Noble Denim. That's yeah, right. It's good stuff. Shout yeah. out Chris Sutton. Right. Yeah. Um, and written I, to a library member, Chris. Yeah, written to a library member, Chris. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think it's one of the most interesting parts, the most interesting lines in this book, I think, is, you know, it starts out with uh, Ken Shizu asking the, the guy, you know, how, do you, how, what's the rule about how you get your chinos like that? And then it ends talking about in American denim culture, you know, you go to look into it in their you see so many rules. You get the uh, the raw denim. You soak <laughs> yeah. it in the bathtub. Right. You don't wash it for a year. Right. You know, but you ask a Japanese guy where the you know some of the best denim comes from, and they're like, "What? You throw in the washing machine? What's the big deal?" You know. Right. So it's almost like yeah. the worm has turned. Yes. <laughs> the multinational worm. And the whole idea of like rules. selling pre-washed jeans yeah. at first was like <laughs> That's so. Hilarious. What's you've already washed this? We only sell new we items. We can't sell this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we only sell new we items. We only sell new stuff. That's right. They called it the ice wash. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because yeah, it would lightened up the denim so much it was like icy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's there's plenty of other stuff in this book too. I mean, it kind of gets into Japan's place in streetwear, um, which. Uh, you know they're they're kind of on the cutting edge of modern style and fashion, especially in the streetwear department. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. It seemed like you know to to sum up like, a hundred fifty fifty pages of the book. It yeah. seemed like there was a there was a point where it was rules, 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 and then as Anthony said, it became the rule became there are no rules, mm-hmm. and that's when you saw a blossoming of let's mix together various eras, various types of vintage clothing. Like, let's pair this wild, you know, European style with this American thing. And that's really, you know, when we look at Harajuku now and we look at pictures of, of Harajuku girls, they're wearing crazy platform, you know, stilettos or, or, and, you know, uh, a detective's coat and an anime T-shirt yeah. and, like, wild yellow sunglasses. It's not strictly, you know, it's not, you know, strict Ivy. It's not, you have all different kinds. You have people that want to stick to Ivy. You have people that are into the heavy duty and, and are wearing puffy jackets and, and red wing boots. Um, and it's just like this crazy fun melange of different flavors and colors. And, yeah. and Bape is a perfect example yeah. of that. Bape now, is, go ahead. Yeah. Bape is, is one of the sort of leading, uh, streetwear companies, um, that, you know, the hip-hop community early on adapted Bape as sort of, like, best-in-class in terms of, you know, sneakers and, uh, you know, raincoats, like, uh, you know, appropriating uh, military themes and, and, you know, crazy pop colors and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's just... Put the question out there. Did Japan save American style? And if so, how? Ben. Uh yeah, I th- I think so. I think I think by injecting this this attitude of of you know of a strictness and a purity that America had lost by sort of, you know, sending all of our manufacturing overseas and saying, well, you know, let's Let's, which is, you know, it gets into a lot of gray political areas <laughs> of like mass production. And, you know, look, we, 
there's an appetite for consumption in America and companies fill that appetite by manufacturing things cheaply and that's controversial and that's, I, I don't know what else to say about that, but, but we certainly, by doing that, we, 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 you know, downgraded the quality of the, you know, items that, that we invented. Yeah. You know, the, the blazers and jeans that we invented, we mm -hmm. downgraded their quality by not really caring about the quality of the, um, raw materials and, and production that was going into it. And Japanese uh, consumers demanded a higher quality, a strict um, conformity to those rules and, and, and also injecting their own sense of whimsy and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, their own sense of style. Uh, kind of, you know, today, 2016, 2017, made us, makes us sort of step our game up and say, you know, how do we compete with them? Cause, mm -hmm. cause it, and I think now there's sort of a camaraderie between American, uh, you know, um, American menswear producers and Japanese menswear producers where they say, like, you know, let's, let's work together or compete against one another to see who can make the, the, the best, you know, uh, plain blue Oxford cloth, you know, <laughs> button-down shirt. Yeah. yeah. It's so true. It's like, yeah. it seems like the stuff that um, we're now trying... Japan copied American style, and now the Americans are trying to copy their best <laughs> Japanese impression of that classic thing that they that they mastered. Yeah. You know, I mean, I Absolutely. guess like you know, in a non, in some kind of weird poetic way, right? Like the Japanese are these uh, have this this culture, like this ancient mystical culture of like protecting the sanctity of themselves and, mm -hmm. and doing things just perfectly and very disciplined. And in an odd way, they've almost taken that same level, that aura, that Japanese aura, and applied it to protecting American fashion. <laughs> yes, um, that's amazing. You know, it's, yeah. it's like we've, to the point now that, um, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. So there's, there are brands that are, are really big um, Japanese brands that are really, really well-respected. And mm -hmm. kind of like articles sphere, I'd say. Uh, there's this brand called The Real McCoys that literally try to match the exact stitch count mm -hmm. on a classic American piece. Right. Like literally the amount of times that the needle goes through the the fabric, uh, you know. Wow. Um, so it's that kind of, I don't know if they necessarily saved American fashion mm -hmm. uh, as much as they've certainly preserved it. Right. Uh, you know, and have given us a guide as to what is the absolute best. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you if you read an interview with uh, W. David Marks, he makes that point. He's saying, when I say saved, I also mean preserved. Yeah. yeah. And I also mean, I mean, they were buying, people in Japan were buying Alden boots mm -hmm. all, or, and shoes. Um, it's old New England shoe company mm -hmm. that makes great shoes, but might not be around today um, if... Not for the Japanese market. They bought J Press, a classic yeah. Ivy mm -hmm. label. Mm -hmm. Love J Press. Yeah, Brooks Brothers is huge in Japan. So these right. classic, in in financially and in a preserving way, I think I think he does a good point or a good job of make getting the point across um, in those two departments. Definitely. Um, well, you know it's interesting, Anthony. I asked you to be part of this podcast because you're in the business, as it were. But 
when we were talking about actually doing it, you mentioned that you're actually working with a Japanese yes. company now. Yeah, so we, um, oddly enough, just this spring, um, you know, we've kind of gone through this circle too, where when, when an article came about, it was kind of like uh, the big deal was what they would call an Amatora, where the, um, what was it, the... Uh, the, the guy, the rough and tumble guys, heavy, the names heavy escaping duty. me, the heavy, heavy duty. duty. Yeah. Okay. So we've sort of been this heavy yeah. duty store, Very right? True. Yeah. Um, where we're, we're stocking the red wing style boots and the heavy denim and, you know, the, the outdoor, the parka that Ben, that you yeah. got from us, that's a Freeman's piece. Um, you know, we've always played heavily into that. And I think that that spoke to kind of like where uh, American men were more, more buying into fashion in the last few years because, you know, it's accessible. You can understand that this maker made this in the United States. Um, we've just now gotten into where, hey, it doesn't have to be made from the United States because there's actually stuff outside of the United States that's that's really cool, or at least ideals happening from outside the United States. So we've begun working with two folks who are United States driven um, that have ties to Japan. One would be Freeman Sporting Club, which mm -hmm. is this classic New York. Uh, tailoring and suiting brand. They have a shop there, barbershop, restaurant, awesome, awesome branding. Um, they now have a, a store in Japan and a partnership in Japan and are making some incredible garments from Japan that we're going to be bringing in-house. Um, and they were also working now with this, I think is the most ultimate tie-in to this book. Um, you remember Velvachine? You've heard of Velvachine? Yeah. Uh, basics, tees, yeah. Uh, sweatshirts. There used to be stores around town where you could go in, you know, you'd pick out your color of your T-shirt, the, the, the Velvachine T-shirt, and then you could customize your, the graphic that you wanted on it, right? And mm -hmm. you saw a lot of, like, in the 70s, a lot of these kind of, like, it'd be like a blue shirt with, you know, these rainbow stripes and kind of like an athletic-looking fashion across the front, but it would say something totally random, like, uh, you know, Park Hills PTA in the middle of it. Or, uh, you know, you could, you could get, like, that kind of thing branded on there. Or it might just say Cincinnati or uh -huh. Chicago. Or the most famous one is uh, Mickey Mouse with, like, this kind of neon script on the side that just says Florida yeah. on a black oh, yeah. T-shirt. Uh -huh. yeah. That is Velvachine. Uh, they started out kind of basically making undershirts, underwear. They, tees would come packaged two at a time in plastic. Um, all from Cincinnati, classic Cincinnati knitwear brand. Um, they went through this thing where they did all the licensing agreements and you could put all the graphics on the T-shirts and they really expanded the company that way. They made a lot of money that way and then sold it to Brezos Sportswear, which ended up tanking and taking the brand down with it. In the last few years, Velvachine has actually been re revitalized by a Japanese group of apparel investors who are bringing it back up as kind of like this Amatora style, you know, we're going to preserve this classic American brand and they're taking it to Japan and now it's starting to gain real prominence across the United States. It's, um, all, and, and the thing about the Japanese is, well, it's this classic American brand. We don't want it to be made in Japan. Yeah. So they actually make it in, it's made in LA, uh -huh. um, made in the United States by these guys and they do a ton of business in Japan, like I said, but now it's kind of starting as a premium knitwear brand. They're branching out into, like, cardigan, 
uh, fleece cardigans, Henleys, uh, things of that nature. We're going to actually be working with them and be the sole proprietor of this uh, new brand, the restarted brand in Cincinnati. So we're really excited to to bring a piece of Cincinnati back home by way of Japan. Yeah. And they're they're so they want to preserve the original so much that they're depending on the tag that's in the t-shirt or the packaging matches the original Velvachine <laughs> packaging. It still says Cincinnati, Ohio that's on funny. it. Yeah. And, and and it's you know, depending on the the feel of the shirt, you know, would correlate with kind of like, well, this was more like what they would wear in the 50s or this would be like more like the kind of the feel of the shirt in the <laughs> 70s and that they put in the 50s tag or the 70s style tag of the vel- of the original Velvachine. So, it's I think a really cool Cincinnati story, but also a major tie-in to yeah. to this book. It's basically a chapter out of it. It is yeah. a chapter from Amatura. Yeah, I mean Amatura Two. It's a fantastic it's a Cincinnati story. It's a great you know menswear story. Yeah, I think the Mercantile Library needs to do a T-shirt series on <laughs> Belvachine T-shirts. <laughs> yes, I'm just gonna throw it out there. All right. Um, uh, well, I was looking at the Mercantile Library logo on my way in. I was just remembering what a cool logo it is. Yeah. I'm like, we should put that thing on a hat, like an Ebbetsfield flannel hat. For those it's listening cool. that that maybe don't know what the logo looks like because you've never been to the website, it is a uh, it is kind of like a like a vintage athletic logo with the M and the L. The yeah. L is transposed over the L. It's very Yankees. It's very yeah, Yankees esque. Yeah, it is a very cool logo. But that's I believe it. older than the Yankees. I believe. That's right. No, it's not. There's no way. Uh, I just said that's right because I, I wanted to. I just said you. it because well, I wanted to. I believed to, you too because you're the expert true. here. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, so let's just go with it. Okay. Yeah, the Yankees yeah, the copied. Yankees yeah. copied. Yeah. The Yankees copied the Berkshire Hill Library. <sighs> Those damn Yankees. Damn I Yankees. knew that's what you were going to say. Which, by the way, is the title of the chapter <laughs> from this book that yeah. we're discussing right now. All right, Ben. Usually we do book discussion or book recommendations at this point, but let's kind of open it up. Like, where do you go for your Japanese culture fix, menswear, menswear fix, online, magazines, books, wherever? This is a great question. Um, in terms of Japanese culture locally in Cincinnati, um, People might know that uh, Toyota has had a presence here for a long time, and so we are lucky enough to have several excellent, authentic Japanese restaurants. My personal favorite is a place called Ando, Ando Japanese. Uh, it's off of the Pfeiffer Road exit, off of 71 North, <laughs> like behind a Bob Evans in a strip mall, <laughs> which is, you know, it's like cliche now, but that's where all the good food is these days. Right. Um, it, I can't recommend it enough. It's run by the same couple for 30 years, um, and it's, it's really fantastic. Great. Anthony? Yeah. Um, is Yo An? Looks like Joe Ann. Yeah. You know, if yes. Yeah, is that still? Uh, still rocking. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's another great one. It's it in Kentucky. Makes, I'm worried, though. So I live in Kentucky, and now that we have Toyota leaving, that's right. unfortunately, yeah. um, to Texas, what... You know, what are the, you know, these purest Japanese restaurants that are really... I don't know. I'm, that's not, we're not talking about books now. I've got us. <laughs> but what are, they, what are okay. we going to do? I mean, are they going to go with them or what? I well, sure hope not. It's interesting. Like, when they opened, they imported, a like, a, you know, Japanese-trained chef. Yeah. Um, and he's not the same. It's not the same guy, but they've maintained a really high level of quality there. And I, it's it's hard to know. 
yeah. will happen to that. That's, that's unfortunate. I, um, as far as just kind of more uh, periodicals and things, I mean, there is a, a magazine called Men's File, which I have to think is inspired by the original Men's Club. Yeah. Um, a Japanese magazine that is kind of a traditionalist American take Japanese magazine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, aside from dining out, I and mean, we certainly see, so I get to go to um, buying trips. One of the best, the coolest things about having a store like this is that you actually get to go rub elbows with some of your, like, pseudo heroes, right? Mm. You know, the, these folks are making these brands that you just totally are in tune with, and then all of a sudden you get to get on a plane, go to New York City, and then meet with them in their place and pick out the stuff that you want to buy from them for the upcoming season. And one of the funnest things, most fun, <laughs> yeah. Most Thank fun. you. We would have edited that <laughs> out anyway. Since we're in the mercantile yeah. library, uh, I, I'm gonna, you know, correct myself. Be very scholastic here. One of the most fun things about going to these shows is actually looking at the way the Japanese folks are dressed. Because yeah. even when you can tell they're going after American heritage style, they are hands down the best <laughs> dressed folks. And it's like, um, just I just I just. It's always, I'm always jealous of the way that they look, but I just tell myself that it's their body type, and I'm this like big hulking American, and I can never pull off half the stuff that they do. But uh. honestly, they're not. They don't look really that different than the stuff we sell at Article. It's just like, what are they doing? They just wear everything <laughs> so well. You know, it's like their tie is splayed just enough, and um, like everything is like rolled and cropped, or, or using a different fabric than you think you've ever seen. And I think yeah. um, so. I. In for me, I don't go seeking out a lot of um, unless it's for brand info. Um, like I'm not reading that Men's File magazine, you know, but I'm certainly in tune with some of the Japanese brands that we carry. Researching that on a regular basis and just kind of encountering Japanese people in our travels that are super inspiring to me. So great, and I think I think you can still if you search around. New issues of Popeye. I think it's still being really? published. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. I'd love That's to. wild. Yeah. Take a look at that. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for joining us on the 12th story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile L-I-B. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by me, Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Anthony Graziani and Ben Greenberg. The Troll Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. And don't forget to visit us online at mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.